All right. Turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 8 and find your place in verse 18. And this morning, I'm just going to read the text and pray, and then we're going to get into it, okay? So if you are able to stand and you would like to stand, please do so to honor God as we read his word. So just to recap, last week Gideon um, had, he was chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, and he had, his men had marched 40, 40, 40 miles to one city, 46 miles to, the, to get to the next city, 46 miles total to get to the next city, two Israelite cities that he asked for help for his men to have some food, and they rejected him. And then when he came back, he punished them for not aiding God's people while they were in battle. So, verse 18 is where we pick up. He's caught the two kings by this time. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself, as is the man so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask for wisdom and discernment as we look at your word. May your spirit teach us what we need to learn today and how to apply that to life. And Lord, as we continue to study Judges, may we continue to see your hand and heart of mercy upon the lives of your people and evident in our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so the first point in your notes is Gideon's action. So I want to talk a little bit about I'm, I'm going to break this up into three pieces, but it's really more like two pieces. For points one and two, points, point one is about what he does, does here in the text. Points two and three are going to be more like application, but point two is going to be kind of um, wrestling with how to look at the text, how to interpret the text. So, um, so let's first look at what he does. So we first learn in the text today that these two kings, the two Midianite kings, um, had killed Gideon's, all of Gideon's brothers, um, his full brothers from, from his mother, um, which I think is a, a distinction I'm glad the text gives us because he's not talking about like brothers in terms of Israelites, like people of my nation. He's talking about like relatives within his family. They were all brothers, they were all my brothers, 
um, of, the, of the same mother. And so we don't know anything about this situation, really. We're just, this is when we're first introduced to the fact that these guys had killed some people that were uh, Gideon's brothers. Um, so we can only assume that that probably happened at some point in the past during one of the raids, because we, we talked about at the very beginning of Gideon's account how Midian would come in every year at harvest time, and they would just destroy the land. And so I'm guessing at some point during one of those, there had been confrontation, and, and these two kings killed some of Gideon's brothers. It must have been a memorable event because the two kings, they knew what Gideon was talking about. You know, and when you're, when you're a, a nation with an army and you come in year after year and you just, like, wipe out the land, probably encounter and engage in battle somewhat with people who are zealous and want to try to put a stop to that, there's probably a lot of that stuff going on, but they remembered what Gideon was talking about. And so if it happened sometime in the past, I don't know how many years, but I, my guess is if Gideon is anything like any other human being, that was probably something that Gideon had most likely thought about often, allowing that to stir around in his mind and allowing those things to affect either how he thinks or how his heart reacts. Because Gideon is a human being who has human emotions and human judgment. And I don't know what it's like to be in his situation, but I do know what it's like to be a human. And I do know what it's like when people do something that wrong me and how I respond to that. And here, I think we see his human side begin to govern his thinking rather than allowing God and his word to govern his thinking. So he had learned obedience, and he was counted faithful. And we, we talked about how um, he, he learned obedience, and he, and he did follow God and trust God. And later on, we've talked about how Hebrews 11 refers to him as one who would have been considered faithful in the list if the writer of Hebrews had had time to go on. But here, I think he has a lapse of judgment. And I'm going to make the case today, I hope, of why I believe that. Before this situation, before the, the, the situation in our text where he's confronting these two kings about what the, the, how they killed his brothers, before all of that, Gideon had been obedient, and everything that he'd done, we'd, we've talked about, has been for God's glory. He, um, he didn't want to be the one to go into battle, and so it wasn't a pride thing. He didn't think he could do it. It wasn't a pride thing. He tested God to make sure that God was actually the one talking to him, that it, that it really was God that he was, that God was going to keep his promise, that he would deliver the Israelites from the hand of Midian by Gideon's hand. He went through all those things, and when it comes time to get into the battle, Gideon tells the people that this is a battle for the Lord. And so they raise the battle cry and they do all the things that Gideon says to do. And they wait and they allow God to take care of the majority of the, of the soldiers. And then they start pursuing them afterward when God tells them to go. So Gideon's actions have been obedient. 
They've been things that have pointed people to what God is doing. But here, he changes from focusing on the things that God had instructed him to focusing upon the things that are going on, I think, in his own heart. When he's detained Zeba and Zamuna, he questions them about their killing of his brothers. And in his anger, I believe, it's in his anger for what they had done to his brothers that he is seeking revenge. Now remember, the text from last week that immediately precedes this text, Gideon is, you know, he's dealing with the, the people of Succoth and the people of Peniel who did not step up and help God's people when they were in need. They taunted him. We talked about how it was, it was a, a mocking um, of, of him. They were very sarcastic with him. And so by the time he catches these two kings, my guess is he's, he's probably already in a cranky mood, like I would have been. Um, probably not in the best mindset to be dealing with an enemy when your own people have rejected you as well. And so he, you know, the people of Peniel and Succoth in the text from last week, he punishes them for their lack of support for God's army. He, it was a punishment that brought about physical torture to the people of Succoth and destruction of the fortified tower in Peniel and death to the men of Peniel. So I'm guessing he's in a cranky mood. I mean, if you, if you look at what he dealt with just before he caught these two kings, those people, they were not, I don't think they were necessarily uh, rejecting Gideon. I think it was a rejection of God. But Gideon, Gideon, I, as, as he's dealing with them, not supporting his people, Gideon says, when God delivers them into my hand. So he's still giving credit to God. He's still pointing all the glory to God. When God hands them over to me, then I'm going to come back and there's going to be punishment. And he, so, so when he's dealing with those people, he's dealing with people who, um, when he brings punishment, he's bringing punishment because of their rejection of God. Now, if you think about... If you think about how your own mind thinks and works, and I want you to be honest with yourself, because if you just tell yourself that you are perfect and you would never do this, then it's not going to really be effective. I want you to think, I'm not asking you to share this with people, I just want you to think about your own mind, and I'm thinking about how my mind works here, and I am, I think it's human tendency to be more lenient when someone when someone talks bad about God or when someone rejects God, then if I'm honest with myself, I'm more lenient with that than when somebody does something to wrong me or attack me personally. Because when it becomes personal to me, then my pride kicks in. Now, that doesn't mean I will never defend God or that doesn't mean I, I never get upset with people who reject God or or who say things that I know are wrong about God, and I do try to correct that at times, but if I'm really honest with myself, my pride kicks in more when I've been personally attacked. And so if Gideon does what he did to punish those two cities 
because they rejected God and they didn't help God's people. And what he did was he killed men and he tore down a tower and destroyed the city. And he, the other, the other city, he tortured them with thorns in their flesh. If that's, if that's the more lenient approach, because they rejected God, now he's got a personal attack toward himself. I think it's human tendency to be overly zealous when we're personally wronged more than when our Savior is wronged or attacked, just because of human pride. So when Gideon captures these kings of Midian, who are the ones who now have done this personal wrong to him, killed his, his brothers, it's like the gloves come off. We're no, we're no, longer, we're no longer messing around. He's going to exact his revenge by doing to them as they had done to his brothers. And so he makes the decision that they need to die as well. So that's what he does. Those are his actions. Um, Now, as we move into point number two, I want to evaluate those. We're going to look at uh, evaluating Gideon's actions. So there are two ways that there are two ways to view this. You could view what he's done to these two kings as just following precedent. Um, They were oppressing God's people, and precedent is that the judge or or chosen person um, kills the leader of the people who are oppressing God's people. So let's look at some examples. Um, You have the example of Ehud, who killed Eglon, king of Moab. They were oppressing God's people. They'd been enslaved to the Moabites for some time. Ehud delivers them, and the first thing he does before he pursues the people, like the army or or the people of Moab, first thing he does is he gets a meeting with the king secretly, and he kills him. And then he pursues the, the, the army or the citizens. Jael... She was not the judge. She was the chosen instrument. But during the time of Deborah, Jael, the wife of Haber, killed Sisera, who was the commander of the army of Canaan. And it was after she killed him that they were that the Israelites were then delivered from oppression. And we could even go farther back than judges and say Joshua probably set the precedent because he killed five kings who uh, that he had captured in battle and if you go back and read Joshua chapter 10 verse 26 so you could even say Joshua set it set the precedent he had conquered these nations and he gathered these kings and he put them all to death and so the first way to view this is that there is precedent here that Gideon's just following what everybody else has done he God delivered his people out of the hands of Midian. He's captured the two Midianite kings, and he puts them to death. The other way to view this is that even though we could say there's precedent that has been set, that Israel did not kill the enemy leader every time. So let's look at some of the examples here. Sisera was killed by JL, but he, he was not the Canaanite king. He was the leader of their army. The Canaanite king was Jabin, 
and he was not killed upon Israel's victory when they were delivered. Um, he was slowly destroyed as Israel became more and more oppressive of him and his nation. But he was not put to death upon their victory over the, um, the Canaanites. Um, we're not told, if you look at the other examples of the judges, we're not told that Othniel killed the king of Aram or that Shamgar killed the Philistine king. I mean, there, were, there was deliverance that took place. There were battles that took place. There was killing. We know Shamgar killed like 600, I think, Philistines we, um, at the end of chapter 3. Um, but it does not say that he killed the, the Philistine king. But I think the distinction more than anything else with Gideon is that killing Zeba and Zalmunna seems, in my mind, as I read the text, seems to be a personal thing for him. It's not, it's not a command by God to, to, to put them to death. It's a personal thing. And we know it's personal because of this. He tells them. He tells them in... Um, so he asks them in verse 18 where we started, he asks them, um, what kind of men did you kill? And they say, men like you with the bearing of a prince. And then he says to them, those are my brothers. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. And so God has not commanded him to kill them. But because Gideon has now, because they have now done something personal to him, he says, because... The reverse of that, if you had not killed them, I would spare your life. The reverse of that is because you killed them, because you have done this personal thing to me, I am now going to take your lives as well. So I think the one view is there's precedent. The other view is this seems to be more personal rather than a command on the part of the Lord to his servant. Scripture warns us about getting personal revenge and we see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 32, 35. Um, I won't have you turn to that one. There's some scriptures I'm going to have you turn to. But 32, 35 in Deuteronomy, Moses is recording the words of God. And he says this. He says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. So this instruction is handed down from the time of Moses long before the time of Gideon. So it's not like we could even say that Gideon hadn't learned that God says, let me take revenge or let me be the one who repays people because this was handed down long before the time of Gideon. Now, whether or not Gideon knew that, I don't know because there's a lot of stuff we learned at the very beginning of his account that he apparently didn't know about God. So I don't know if he'd heard it or not, but we know that God's Law says, let me be the one who repays. You don't take personal vengeance on people. So Gideon is standing there, and he's decided, made, made the decision that they need to die, and he instructs his son. He's got a son standing nearby. It's his oldest son, Jether. But the text tells us he's only a boy. So Gideon must have been a pretty young guy at the time. His oldest son is still considered a boy. In that culture, we were talking about this in Sunday school as well, in that culture you were considered 
you're no longer considered a boy basically when you're a teenager. So he must have been, his son must have been pretty young. Like junior high, grade school maybe. And he says to his son, kill, kill them. He tells his son to kill the two kings. But he was afraid because he was only a boy, and so he didn't want to do it. Now, the kings, when the boy doesn't want to do it, and he doesn't draw a sword, tells us, the kings then mock Gideon, and they say, you come and do it. And, and they say um, specifically to him, and this is a, qu a quote within the text, so I don't know if this is a quote like, if this is like a common saying or a proverb or something that was understood at the time or, or what, but, um, but they say to him, come, do it yourself, and then they, then they quote, quote this, as is the man, so is his strength. And so because the boy doesn't want to, then they taunt Gideon and say, you come and do it yourself. Now, I did, I did read as I was studying about this that... Um, and we see an example of this in Judges chapter 9, that it was considered disgraceful if you were a soldier and you died by the hand of either a child or a woman. Um, in, nine, in Judges 9.54, Abimelech, um, we'll get to that soon, but Abimelech um, didn't want it to be said that a woman had killed him because there was a woman who dropped a stone off of a tower and crushed his head. Um, and so he didn't want it to be said that a woman had killed him, so he tells his armor bearer to run a sword through him. Um, and so there was it, it was, it was a disgraceful thing in their minds if you were not killed by a warrior. And so they wanted to be known as people who were taken down by Gideon, who has certainly become what God called him at the very beginning of when God first met with him, mighty warrior. And so Gideon then takes them up on their challenge and takes a sword and kills them both. All right, so let's look at some application as we have wrestled with it. And I, I uh, obviously, I, I think maybe this was a personal thing that he shouldn't have done, but I'm open to anybody who thinks that scripture would indicate something else. But let's look at how we can apply this in terms of our own life um, if I'm correct and he had gotten personal revenge and shouldn't have. If we go back to Deuteronomy 32, 35, that, that text where God says, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. Um, what that text is telling us is that getting revenge on someone for harming you in some way is really not our role. So there are certain things that God calls us to do and calls us to be, and one of the things that he does not call us to do and be is someone who takes out personal, uh, if we've been personally harmed, he does not call us or really allow us to be the one who repays those people. Now, God is a God of justice, and so I'm not saying that God is just letting people get away with it. In fact, God is a defender of his people. But it's his role to defend his people who have been persecuted in some way, not ours. 
I think the Deuteronomy text is clear with that, but I think there are other places in Scripture that we're going to look at that indicate the same thing. Because Paul quotes the same thing, the Deuteronomy text, in his letter to the Romans. And when he quotes it, he explains something. If you, um, well, well, we'll look at it in just a minute. I'm not yet. But he explains something that Deuteronomy actually doesn't explain that we, we learn of it um, from what Paul says. And Paul says that, um, says that when we do not seek revenge, like if we follow what Deuteronomy says, and we don't seek revenge, and we don't repay evil for evil, then what we're doing is we're leaving room for God's wrath. We're leaving room for God to be able to handle the situation in the way in his sovereignty and his wisdom he knows to be best. And as badly as we want to repay someone, and I don't know, like, I know, all you, I know you all, and I know that you're not angry people, and I know that you're not people who are necessarily, like, thinking about the person who wronged you and trying to figure out how you can get them back. But it is a human thing at times when someone has wronged us to, to want to do something, to want to say something, to want to do something, to want to give them a taste of their own medicine, especially if it's somebody who does it over and over and over again. And as badly as we might want to repay them in some way for something bad that they've done to us, like, one of the things that, for people who really struggle with this, one of the things I want them to understand is you want so badly to get them back, but anything that you can think up and do is not going to be, it's not going to be a complete, it's not going to be as complete and perfect as God knows to do to to handle the situation in order for them to in order for him to defend his people and them to get an understanding of what they've done. I mean, do we think we can repay someone for their evil as completely as God can? I don't I don't think so. I I assure you that if God chooses to repay a person for what they've done, if God handles a situation and he chooses to do it in the way that he knows to be best, I can assure you that that is going to be more effective than it's going to be, than anything that we can do. And honestly, what it might end up doing is saving you from sinning. If we allow room for God to handle it, then we remove ourselves from the situation and prevent ourselves from potentially stepping over the line and violating God's character. Here's the thing. If allowing God to not, if we don't allow God to handle it, or if we don't think the way God is going to handle it will be the best situation, for example, Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to the people of Nineveh because he knew God would be merciful. He knew he'd be compassionate on them. And so Jonah then gets angry because God didn't handle the situation the way Jonah thought he should have handled it. So we, we know that we can think that at times. And if we think that God isn't going to handle something in the proper way or we wish he would do something more severe against somebody who had harmed us in some way, the issue then is not really an issue of justice, like you needing to have justice done. 
The issue is more an issue of pride in our heart. Now let me ask you, do you, do you know anybody, and I know some, I'm sure you all have people in your life, do you know somebody when, they, when something has been done wrong to them, when somebody's wronged them, they just cannot let go of that? Anybody know people like that? You don't have to tell me who, but just tell me, do you know people, do you have people in your life who, who cannot let go of something, that they just stir, it stirs in their mind, they never let it go, they don't even necessarily try to let it go. They just, all they do is that, it, that becomes what consumes them. If you know people like that, and I don't think any of you are like that, but who knows? Sometimes we keep good secrets in our hearts that nobody knows. So you might be dealing with that with somebody, but I, I, know, I know people like this. I've seen them become so obsessed with someone who's harmed them in some way, and they spend all of their time and all of their energy stewing over what, it, what they did, thinking of things to get them back, thinking of words that they're going to say to them the next time because they should have said it the first time. And I've even done this myself at times. And here's if, if you don't let that go, if you find yourself doing this and you don't let it go and you don't leave it in God's hands, then you're going to become a bitter, angry person. And those are the opposites of the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the fruits of the sinful nature. You're going to become a bitter, angry person, and you're going to end up doing something or saying something that later on you regret doing or saying. And if you become bitter and angry and you don't let go of it and you just continue to live in that, then you find yourself you find yourself veering off away from God because you're allowing something that's not his character to rule your life. And the more you do that, the farther and farther away you get from him. God's instruction is to allow him to be the one who repays those who do evil against us. It's, so if, if, we, if we don't do that, if we try to, if we hold on to that and we allow it to control us, then we, we sin against God because we're not allowing the fruit of the Spirit to, to mature and grow in us. We're allowing sinful, the fruit of sinful nature to take root in our lives. We end up sinning against other people because um, we're told... By Jesus, we're told if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We're told through God's uh, apostles, Peter and Paul, that we're not to repay evil for evil. So I'm going to have you turn to a couple places. Romans 12 is the first one. If you'll turn with me to Romans 12, verse 17. I don't have them up here, so you're going to have to do the old school way and flip through your Bibles. Romans 12, 17 to 21. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. He does quote the Deuteronomy passage that we read earlier in this part, but I want to read more of the context. So he says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. 
but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so Paul's instruction here, as he's taking God's instruction from his law in Deuteronomy, Paul's instruction is, it's not our role to repay someone for the evil that they've done. And in fact, if we allow God to do that, and we do, if we take more of what Christ's character looks like, feeding an enemy if he's hungry, giving him something to drink if he's thirsty, Paul says, Paul says, if you do that, you are, you are bec- you're treating them like Christ would treat them, and you're allowing God to be the one who, who handles repaying them. And in doing that, Paul uses the symbolism, you're heaping burning coals on their head. And then he gives this very clear instruction, don't let evil be the thing that overcomes you, but you overcome it with good. And so Paul is giving a very, dis- very, very clear message that there are, there are two sides here. There is acting like Christ and there's acting in opposition to him. And he says, you are to act like Christ. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. We're going to start in verse 9 and read through verse 12. 1 Peter 3 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter quotes Psalm 34 in there. But Peter's message here is, if, like, there's a specific instruction here that if if you repay evil with a blessing, it's actually for your benefit. Because God knows that holding a, you will be blessed in the meantime if you, if you don't repay evil with evil, but you repay it with blessing. Because God knows that holding a grudge and seeking revenge is slowly going to kill you on the inside. It will just waste away your life. But we're, we're called to repay evil with blessing in order that we can inherit a blessing. So when God deals with a sinner and the evil person that has done something against you, Here's the difference between how God handles it and, and, and how we handle it when it's personal for us. God, God always handles people, and there's more to it than just repayment for wrong. When we're wronged, we just want to get them back. We want them to taste what it feels like. God's purpose is he wants them to understand why what they did was wrong so there can actually be change in their life. God's heart is to draw people to himself, to bring repentance and salvation. And sometimes the very person that we want to be punished so badly for the wrong that they've done to us is a person that God wants to save 
And through that life saved by grace, sometimes God pours out blessing upon us and upon other people in gospel ministry. Here's the best way I think I can put it. When we look at somebody that's wronged us, we see a Herod, or we see a Caesar, or we see some, some a Nebuchadnezzar or somebody like that. When God looks at those people, sometimes he sees, and, and I don't, don't get me wrong, sometimes those people are a Herod or a Caesar or a Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes there's nothing good in them. But sometimes God looks at those people and he sees an Apostle Paul in that person. And God knows, I just need to work in his life and bring him to, to myself. And then we'll see a transformed life who's ready to surrender to the Lord. All right, let me just wrap up real quickly here. Pride is the reason why we would seek revenge, right? Talk about how pride is the root of every, every sin, really. It was the first sin. It's really the root of every sin. Pride would be why we would seek revenge, but pride... So, so the question then is, how do we battle pride? You know, like, if you have a sickness in your life and you just treat the symptoms, you don't get rid of the sickness. So you go, you, you start asking yourself, how do I get rid of the sickness, right? So it'll stop affecting me. If pride is the root of every sin, how do we deal with pride? How do we get rid of pride? And I would say it's this way. You have to find your identity in Christ. The closer I grow to my relationship to Christ and the more I find my identity in Him by becoming like Him, the less pride has a grip on my life. And the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Philippians chapter 3 is where Paul lists all the things about his life before he met Christ, before he surrendered to Christ. Paul had... He lists everything that was valuable to him. It was all worldly stuff. And honestly, according to the world, he, his life was pretty exceptional. He was a pretty amazing person if you're going by the world standards. But then he encountered Christ and he surrendered his will over to Christ. And with a new identity that's now found in Christ, Paul has a completely changed perspective. And the things of this world that he would have taken pride in were no longer that important to him. In fact, in Philippians 3, Paul calls them garbage. All the things that he loved, that he prided himself on, he now says is garbage. Pride no longer had the grip on him that it once did. And so the closer I grow in my relationship to Christ, and the more I find my identity in him, and not in the things that the world uses to define us, our job, our looks, our family, our social or financial status, all those things, like, if I don't find my identity in those things and I allow myself to be found, my identity to be found in Christ, the less pride has a grip on my life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we, I thank you that you don't shy away from showing the negative side of the people who are your servants in scripture because we tend to elevate them to a status of almost superhuman and 
They weren't. They were human. And many times they sinned. And that gives us hope that you could use us and be pleased with us as well. Pride is such a dangerous thing. And seeking revenge when we've been wronged is such a dangerous thing. And maybe, maybe we don't struggle with it in here, but we know people who do. And they need to know what they need to know what you instruct us and why you instruct us to let those things go and allow you to handle it. It's it's for our benefit, for our blessing, so that we don't waste away on things that we can't change and things that we can't effectively do like you can. You want to work in that person's life. You want to bring about a changed heart and mind. You want to bring about salvation in their life and you want to draw them closer to you. Our responsibility, God, is to allow you to do that and to not allow our pride to have a grip on our life. So we need to become more and more like you finding our identity in Christ. As we look at Gideon, um, Lord, um, help us to see the good that we can imitate and the bad that we need to avoid. In Jesus' name.